It can be found in your pew Bibles on page 395. We'll be reading Psalm 32. Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and who and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely, when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with the songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in, your, in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and brittle, for they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing all you who are upright in heart. May God bless the reading of his word. Thanks, Jason. As we do continue to uh, pray and mourn with Elder Terry in the senseless killing of his nephew, um, lift up our prayers for his family. Um, about a week ago, uh, in USA Today, there was this article about a journalist interview uh, with this Army veteran named Matthew Goble. And he was a survivor of the bloodiest engagement in the Afghanistan war, which took place in July of 2008. Uh, Goebel shared, We're taught that I will never leave a fallen comrade. I will never quit. I will never accept defeat. His voice breaking into sobbing gas. Once I got wounded, it seemed like all that went out the window. He was describing what happened at a small observation post wrecked by enemy rocket-propelled grenades and automatic weapons fire. Goebel, who was 24 at the time and a sergeant, and another paratrooper, Tyler Stafford, had crawled out of the smoking maze of sandbagged fighting positions. There were dead American soldiers scattered about. Both Goebel and Stafford were wounded. And as Goebel told the journalists, he was ready to escape to the village below where the balance of their platoon was dug in. Goebel called out asking if anyone was still alive in the outpost. Hearing nothing, he and Stafford crawled and stumbled their way down a stair, uh, down a stair step of terraces to join the rest of the platoon. Except there was one more American still alive. Goebel learned this only later in battle, but it would stay with him forever. I still haven't let myself forgive, I, I still haven't let myself forgive me for what happened that day. 
The journalist wrote, I learned these lessons about these costs when I traveled nearly 20 times into Iraq and Afghanistan, writing about the devastation of roadside bombs, the strain of multiple deployments, and after battle emotional spirals that sometimes end in suicide. A familiar subtext to so many of these service members' narratives was the sense of guilt and shame. Pulitzer Prize winner David Wood wrote eloquently about this phenomenon in his book, What Have We Done? The Moral Injury of Our Longest Wars. He says, almost everyone who goes to war returns with some sense of unease about what we've seen and done and experienced, about how well we lived up to our standards. It does not imply that an atrocity or war crime has been committed, simply that an individual's internal sense of what is right has been violated. The journalist continues, It was always difficult for me to understand their shared sense of guilt. These were young people who, after all, volunteered to serve in the most dangerous places on earth as homage to their country. They strapped on body armor each day, locked and loaded rifles, and headed into forbidding terrain where a well-armed and determined enemy stood ready to kill them. It was the kind of courage that should have earned each one of them dispensation from ever feeling guilty about anything again. But no, one event, one reflexive decision, made in, in a split second during the chaos of battle, could haunt them forever. That is, that is, of course, utterly unfair, and yet this is what they brought home, along with their wounds, their emotional distress, their grief over losing friends, the sense that their souls were now tainted. It was true for Stafford, who made his way down the terraces with Goble that morning. I carry a lot of guilt, he told me. It beat me up for a long, long time. Brian Hissong, another veteran, veteran of that battle, can't set aside the fact that he survived while nine other of his soldiers did not. For years after, I wished I would have died. So as we continue on our series in the Psalms, we're going to dig deeper into this issue of guilt and sin. And all the guilt in this Psalm doesn't perfectly parallel or stem from what these veterans experienced. It does relate in a way which I want to tie in at the end. To begin with, the author of this psalm, as you can see, if you have your Bibles open, you can see from the heading is King David. And he does not give any background as to why he wrote this psalm. As I mentioned in a previous message, the writers of the psalms usually don't uh, tell why they wrote this song or, or psalm or what the occasion was for it, so that the reader can relate it to his or her own context. But much speculation has been made that this psalm was written after David committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah killed. But regardless of the occasion, this psalm helps us understand the full scope of sin and the full spectrum of God's forgiveness. You can see, in looking at verse 32, if you look at verse 1 and 2, you can see that David references sin three times. In my translation in the NIV, In verse 1, he first writes about transgressions. And then later in that verse, he talks about sins. And then in verse 2, he also uses the word sin again. And you can't tell this from the English translation, but actually, in Hebrew, the original language, there's three different words that were used for uh, for these terms. And they speak of three different aspects of sin. 
So the first word, transgression, speaks of our rebellion against God. God created us to follow and obey him. He cared for us and loved him. But we have turned our back against him. Maybe this sounds kind of harsh, but our rebellion has caused us to become traitors before God. Like the family of the Boston Marathon bombers who were welcomed into this country, received much government assistance, and then the two brothers turned their back on the country to attack it. So our rebellion has caused us to defect to the enemy. And then the second word translated sin in verse 1 refers to turning away or missing the mark. You know, it's like a marksman who tries to shoot the target but misses terribly. So we have fallen short in our effort to obey God. And then the third word, sin, used in verse 2, which can also be translated, translated iniquity, means crookedness, perversion, guilt. It speaks of how vile sin is to God and how far we have strayed from his ways. When looking at these three different terms and understanding the different meanings of them, we also understand how sin affects our relationship to God. The first word, transgression, describes our relationship with God in the sense that we have rebelled against him. The second word, sin, describes our relationship with God's law. We have fallen short of obeying it. We've missed the mark. And then the last term describes the effect sin has on us. We have become crooked and perverse, guilty before God. This is the state each person is in before God. And it's not very encouraging. But fortunately, these two verses that David writes also speak of God's forgiveness. And just as he used three different terms to describe sin, so David uses three different terms to describe the holistic effects of God's forgiveness. The first term we see in verse 1 is forgiveness, and it means to lift or carry away. Blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. The weight of sin was like a boulder that was just pinning David down to the ground. But God came and lifted it away. The second word, covered. Blessed is the man whose sins are covered, refers to the atonement. For us, it's the shed blood of Jesus that is being referred to, which covers the sins of the people. Through his blood, God's punishment for sin is satisfied. For the readers back then, they were looking forward to this final atonement that came with Jesus, when they would no longer have to sacrifice animals to pay his penalty for their sins. And then the third word we find in verse 2 is count. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. This is an accounting term. means to have something removed to one's account, or to count means to have something charged to one's account. So it's like if you know, every month you, you make purchases on your credit card and at the end of the cycle you get a statement in the mail from your credit card company and it shows the charges made that you made for that period. And in the sound, you can think of it as you know, the account being labeled sin. 
And when you're showing your statement, instead of showing charges or balance due, it reads zero. So when we are forgiven, God removes the sin from our ledger. But what's more is, is that God teaches, or Paul teaches us in Romans 4 that God not only, not only puts zero in our sin balance, but he also places a positive amount of credit in our righteousness account where there was none before. Let me read to you Romans 4, verses 3 to 8. Paul writes, What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts in God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited, or counted, this term again, as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against him. You can see here, even in Romans 4, Paul uses these two verses, or the, the second, or yeah, these two verses in Psalm 32 to make his point. When God forgives, He lifts the weight of sin for us. He pays the penalty for our sin through the blood of Christ. And he sees us not only as having a zero balance in our sin column, but also credits and puts in a positive balance in our righteousness column. So you see, just in these two verses, for all the ways David describes how horrible sin is, how much greater does he describe God's forgiveness? In response to the question, you know, what is the greatest blessing a person could receive from God? Someone replied, God's forgiveness. And I think that can easily be seen in the psalm. And then David moves on in the next section, using his own example to show the process of forgiveness in his life. For David, first there was resistance. He did not want to confess his sin. He remained hush about it, but he soon felt the effects that sin would have on a person. When I cut my when I cut silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. In other words, he was living with a guilty conscience. You know, probably in, in one way or another, you've all experienced some type of guilty conscience. You know what it's like to go around feeling like this weight is, you know, is tied to you. You know how it just hangs over you and saps your strength and makes you anxious and nervous. I don't know if uh, in high school any of you had to read uh, Edgar Allan Poe's uh, The Telltale Heart, but it speaks of a man who um, murdered another person, who was probably someone he didn't even know. And he buried this person who remains in his basement under the floor. And even though no one had accused him of, of murdering anyone, even though he wasn't caught, the guilt just was overbearing to him. He kept hearing the heartbeat of this dead man, even though the man was dead. And so it was kind of the same with David. He just walked around with this guilty conscience. Verse 4 even teaches that God 
himself will place the heavy conscience on you to bring you to confession and repentance. Out of his love, he made David miserable to break his resistance. And so David went from resistance to relinquishment. He says in verse 5, Then I acknowledge my sin before you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. So through God's movement, through God's conviction, he brought David to a point where he was willing to confess his sin before God. And from there, he experienced release. At the end of verse 5, we see that God forgave his sin and his burden of guilt and God's heavy hand was lifted from him. And then further out in our passage, David lists a couple more rewards that come with forgiveness. The first is found in verse 8, and it's guidance. He says in verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye upon you. This is the Lord speaking, not David. And when he speaks of guidance, understand it's not so much he's referring to things like knowing what college you should go to or you know, whether you should switch jobs or whether you should be in a certain relationship. In context, it's referring to instruction on how to live an upright life before God, how to make decisions that would be morally pure. This is the guidance that is promised when God forgives a person. And next, in verse 11, he speaks of gladness. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing all you who are upright in heart. This is a loud verse. And you can see it from the um, verbs that David uses. Rejoice, be glad, sing. For sing, other translations have the word shout. A more literal translation could be to shriek ecstatically. One commentator noted that this verse conveyed the celebratory worship of ancient Israel. He states, No solemn state occasion this. The milling throngs overcome with the wonder of God's love, prayed about leaping and dancing, shrieking and singing, and a marvelous cacophony of inhibited and infectious praise. It follows that if one recognizes the depths of his sin, and the breath of God's forgiveness, he should be so moved to respond with God with just shouts of praise as he recognizes, you know, how depraved he was before God and how free and forgiven he is after he received God's forgiveness. So we see, you know, this was just a real quick outline of the psalm and we see from this psalm the effects of sin, and the, and, conf- and the blessings that come from confession and forgiveness. And when, when you see all that God has done for us to forgive us, to make us right with him, I mean, what blessings these truly are. And when you first saw the sermon title, you know, you probably thought, you know, this was just a rhetorical question I was asking, right? You know, want forgiveness? Of course, who wouldn't want Forgiveness. But you know, as I was meditating on this passage a little more and thinking through these verses, it occurred to me that sometimes people don't want forgiveness. 
And I thought of three reasons for this. The first may not be as applicable, applicable to us, but people may not want forgiveness because they don't feel they have anything they need to be forgiven for. In verse 6, David writes, Therefore let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Here David is urging his readers to go to God and confess to him their sin. On one hand, yes, there may come a time when God will not choose to make himself available to a person. God does not guarantee that he will be readily available to those who only seek him in times of duress. But on the other hand, there's this responsibility on an individual to acknowledge his or her sin and confess it before God. If the person thinks that there's nothing that needs to be forgiven, he won't go to God. The story has it that this was St. Augustine's favorite psalm. It was such a favorite psalm of his that when he was in his final days on earth, he had the psalm inscribed on his wall so he could continue to look at it and meditate it and meditate on it better. Um, and in response to why this was his favorite psalm, he said, the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. The first John 1.8 confirms this. It says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This relates back to the verse 2 in our psalm where David said, those who are forgiven are those in whose spirit is no deceit. So first, a person may not want forgiveness if they don't think they need it. But then, that person is just deceiving themselves. And once again, I tend to think this isn't an issue for many of us here, or else you probably wouldn't even be here this morning. What I think might be more applicable, though, is that we resist seeking forgiveness because we don't feel we deserve to be forgiven. Like the veteran in the opening story, you believe we should feel remorse for the things we have done, whether warranted or not. Many of us have grown up in performance-based homes, so the result of that is our worth is based on our accomplishments and our achievements. You know, I got accepted, you know, to whatever, to Yale, so I feel great about being able to go to Yale, but correspondingly, when we screw up, we feel we should continue to feel bad because we screwed up. It's hard to forgive ourselves. So why would we want God to forgive ourselves, to forgive us? But the psalm teaches us that God does offer forgiveness. He's willing to remove our guilt and our shame. For people like Sergeant Goebel and Matthew or Stafford, they need to know this truth, that they can be set free from guilt and shame. And they no longer have to feel bad about what they've done as they come to God for forgiveness. And even for these soldiers, they probably haven't done anything wrong, but God can release them from their guilt and their shame. And then a third reason, which I think may be a bit more serious, is that we don't want forgiveness because we don't want to repent. And this is what I mean by that. From verse 5, we saw that forgiveness requires confession. And in verse 2, 
we see that our spirit must be free from deceit. This means that when we come to God for forgiveness, we not only have to admit that we've admitted the sin, in other words, confess it, but we also need to acknowledge that the sin is vile and repulsive before God. This is one of the aspects of sin, one of the definitions of sin we saw earlier. We may be willing to freely confess our sin before God. Yes, God, I I did something wrong. But do we see it as repulsive to God? And as such, are we repulsed by it as well? And a couple that were very committed churchgoers, um, you know, they would come every week, serve faithfully, uh, but they also uh, like to go to the casino very often. They like to gamble. They thought they had a good system to win and not lose money. You know, maybe they would acknowledge that this wasn't God's plan for how people should make money. But they wouldn't want to repent of this habit. They wouldn't want to be forgiven and repent because then they'd have to stop going. Even after one party suffered a big loss, they continued to go back. Or maybe another issue for people here is, you know, certain people like to gossip, maybe. And maybe the person acknowledges that it's wrong and would ask God for forgiveness every time he or she does so. But there's a part of the part of the person that actually likes doing so. So he or she keeps doing it. There's no, there's no acknowledgement that this is vile in God's eyes so, and therefore it should be vile in theirs because then they'd have to stop doing it. But David teaches us in, in verse 2 of the psalm that we deceive ourselves if we think this way. I mean, no matter what the sin is, pride, lust, gluttony, greed, cheating on taxes, you know, whatever. If there's no revulsion, there's, there's deceit in our spirit. In verse 9, David tells us not to be like the horse or mule. And as you probably know, these two animals are quite stubborn. God says in verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. The horses and mules refuse to listen, preferring to go their own way. It says in verse 9, to control the direction of the horse or mule, you have to put a bit or bridle in their mouth to control the direction that they go. And only then can the owner steer them in the direction that he wants them to go. And this is not how God wants to control his people. He doesn't want stubborn-headed followers. What God desires is for people to humble themselves, to come to him in confession and acknowledgement of their sin, to repent and reject the sin that is vile before him and acknowledge that not only is the sin vile before him, but it should be vile before us. And we should desire to accept his instruction and direction. So the question for each of us today is, do we really want forgiveness? We have seen from the sound that God is more than willing to forgive. Our sins and our guilt can be wiped away. We can be clean. We can be free before him. 
And so I pray that each of us would desire God more than we would desire sin. That we would be able to see sin for what it is before God. And that we would want to repent of it and confess it and remove it from our lives so that we can experience God's healing and freedom and forgiveness. I pray that each of you would want this forgiveness. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I thank you uh, for the truth in your word. And Lord, in studying this psalm, I know in teaching it and, and preaching from it, I, I preach to myself as much as I speak to everyone out here. Lord, may I see sin as vile and revolting before you. Lord, may we all see sin as vile and revolting before you. May our desire be to purge the sin from our lives and not just go to you and ask for forgiveness every time we screw up and think that it's okay and we're okay. But let us not have deceit in our spirit. But let us desire you more than sin. Let us desire the freedom from guilt and shame and the freedom that comes from life in you. For all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor David. You can all rise with me.